the uh, Pasha that we just read, the Pasha of Noah, Noah and the Ark and being saved from the flood and leading into the discussion of the generation that lived after the flood that built a tower which uh, they hoped to use to get to the to get to the uh, <coughs> the center of creation or the spiritual world so that they could somehow detach the world from its source and run it according to their own designs <coughs> just as Noach or Noah survived the flood as it were Abraham, Avinu, Abraham survived the generation of the dispersion those people who tried to build that tower with unified effort became dispersed on the face of the earth and he maintained the spiritual connection when the rest of the world lost it these are very perplexing ideas the whole idea of a flood and, and, and floating above it and universal destruction one, one person surviving or a few people surviving and the notion of a tower that's built by means of which they hope to reach the source of creation and, and detach it from these obviously are very perplexing <coughs> ideas that need, need to be thought through There is, in one of the books of the Ramchal, Lutzato, who, as I'm sure you know, was a very great Kabbalist. (coughs) He lived in the 1700s. In one of his classic works, he talks about the notion of the letters that form the Hebrew language. Or letters in general, but of course the ones we mean here are the letters of Torah, and the words that they form. So let's try and learn through this together. This is a difficult area, lots of abstract concepts here. But let's see if we can do our best to learn through some of this and see if we can at least begin to approach some of these uh, perplexing themes that the Torah raises here in these parshas. So he says this. Again, there's certain terminology here or jargon, but <coughs> let's try to isolate the idea that we, that we need. He says, all the higher lights the higher lights until they come down to form a practical action that means the spiritual the energies in the higher worlds again without going into the technicalities of which levels he's talking about but he says here that when the creation devolves when the world manifests from its highest spiritual source levels then before those levels of spirituality if you like or what he calls the world, the emanation of the lights in those worlds. All of these words have particular meanings that need to be need to be studied. But he says when those lights come down into the world of practicality, of function, of activity, the world that we inhabit, they have to come through or traverse or come into the secret of letters. The letters, Aleph, base, Gimel, right? They have to but to come down into that form. <coughs> and this is the this is the Seder, this is the process that is positioned, as it were, to bring a source dimension into a function, into a Lapoel means a um, a Lamaisa, a uh, an expressed from potential to actual, that's how you'd say it, to be realized, to be brought into the actual. And this is what it means, he says, when the Pasuk says, when the verse says, nasu, that the word of Hashem was the cause of the creation. When the heavens were created, as it were, they were created with the word of Hashem. Because there's no 
reality to speech except by letters. That's what he says. There's no reality to speech other than unless you're talking about letters. What is going on here? What is... What is he talking... I mean, you have uh, the interest in, in deeper things. I mean, we can talk about much more superficial practicalities. No? Let's see if we can think into these things. That's what he says. And then he goes on to explain. He said that there are 22 letters... Not less and not more. They have to be 22. And he gives an explanation of why they have to be these numbers. The Kabbalistic books <coughs> go into a lot more detail. And then he uses some Kabbalistic terminology in which he explains that the letters have three sides. The letters have three sides. In other words, each letter in Hebrew, right? again, this requires a lot, of, a lot of background here. Each Hebrew letter has three sides. It has a right, a left, and a center. And this is the three-part structure of any creative energy. Right? It's called, the, the, the jargon is Hadar. Hadar means Chesed, Din, and Rachamim. It's always the right-hand side. It's called Chesed, which is the unconditional outpouring of love or giving, which has no limitations. Din is the left-hand side, which always means, <coughs> Din is the, the root of the word Din, is die. Die means enough. That means where things stop. And in the middle you have the balancing concept that's called Rachamim. Really hard to find the exact English Rachamim really means uh, some <coughs> aspect or emanation of kindness or goodness or, but that's not, there's no real English word for it it's the balance the perfect harmony between the complete and unlimited giving on the right and the complete and unlimited almost holding back on the left when those two harmonize in the center so then you have that unique combination the word Rachamim the root of that word is Rechem in Hebrew Rachem Right? That means this function of kindliness. It also means the womb. The rechem, right, which is in the center of the body. <coughs> you know that <coughs> there are very few organs. The human body is built in a bilateral symmetry. Right? You, all, the, all the organs in the body, or especially all the life-sustaining organs, are duplicated. Right? There are virtually no single organs. Even those that appear to be single, the the sources that talk about these things in the, in the deeper wisdom, they say that even those things have, like the liver, for example, has two parts. The liver has two, it has two lobes and it has two functions in other ways. But there are very few central organs, really. <coughs> the pineal gland, maybe, central organ. The pituitary, which certainly has two components. The spleen is single, but it's not life-sustaining. But the classical central organs are the tongue, what's called the bris aloshin, the covenant, as it were, bris of the tongue, and the bris amar, or the circumcision, or the that, that part of the structure which is genitive or generative <coughs> in male and female, those are central. Those are central. The rest of the body is really in the secret of duplication. It's actually in that reproductive middle line where the harmony of right and left come together, where things are produced. The, uh, <coughs> the uh, central organ in the, in the female, that's the rechem. The word rechem is the root of the word rachamim, which means right and left combined in such a way in the Kabbalistic notion that will be male and female combining to perform, to form a <coughs> productive output. And the word rechem in Hebrew, which means, <coughs> which means this, <coughs> has the same letters, not only as rachamim, which is ultimate kindness, 
because there's no greater kindness than bringing a life into the world, really, uh, involving male and female components, the unlimited outpouring of the male energy, the finite limitation of the female that gives it shape, gives it form, or provides the material that the male form imposes itself on, and the harmonization of those two, the place of that is called the Rechem, which is this concept, no accident, that the Hebrew word Rechem, meaning that organ in which life is conceived, is also the root of this word Rachelim. It's of course no accident that the same letters that spell Rechem, and I'm doing this for a particular reason, I'd like to try to, try to show this, the letters of the word Rechem also spell Machar. Machar in Hebrew means tomorrow, because this is where the future is born. So the root of tomorrow, as it were, right, is this organ. Of course, the same letters in Hebrew, the same letters in Hebrew spell Chomer, right, which is where all material, this is where the material origin is, of course. And the same letters, of course, are Ramach, right, which is the 248 organs that are formed in the uterus, right, the 248 parts of the body that are formed there. But this is the, <coughs> this is where it is. So he says like this, we'll come back to this in a moment, but the letters, the letters themselves have a right and a left and a center. And the way the letters constructed, again, we have to think about this carefully because we're not used to thinking this way. We are so, we are so trained to think opposite to this because we haven't, we haven't been exposed to this wisdom and because we come from a worldview that does not, does look at, doesn't look at things this way. So we have a blockage to these ideas. But the letter in Hebrew is formed of its three components. It has a right-hand side, a left-hand side, and a center. The right side of the letter indicates the side of chesed. The left side of the letter indicates the side of din, limitation. And the middle of the letter indicates this combination. And every Hebrew letter has three, three components. And the structure of the letter indicates what balance of energies is coming through that letter. Right? Either the letter has a small representation like a yud, in which it's very, very compressed and hidden its influence, or it has a long representation which is above. <coughs> in, 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 in the graphics... Right? In, the, in the wisdom of, of graphical representation, you, everything is made either from a point or from a line. Right? You have a light dimensionless point, that's called the yud, or you have the line, which is a yud extended, which is the vav. Right? Everything else is really from there, because a plane is nothing other than a vav extended, and a volu- volume is nothing other than a plane extended. Uh, are you with me? But when you're writing in two dimensions, right? so then what you have is you have a representation of a dot, which is only a yud, Yud in Hebrew is the smallest indication of any expressed letter. It's only a dot, but it contains the ten. Yud is ten. That contains the ten seed elements that produce everything that comes out of them. And when that thing extends itself in, 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 in a line, you have what's called a vav. Vav in Hebrew means expression or connection from the higher world to the lower world, coming down from the source and manifesting. <coughs> the Hebrew word vav means a hook. Vav in Hebrew means a hook. Right? It means that which connects two things together. The letter Vav in Hebrew means and. <coughs> the conjunction, the way you express a conjunction in Hebrew, connection between two things, you say V. Right? That means because the letter that is a line is really indicating a connection between point of origin, which is a dot, an extension of that thing into another dimension, which is what a line is. So the letters are made up either of a small expression, namely a Yud, or a long expression, namely a Vav. And depending on how the letter is constructed, whether the Yud is on the right side, or the yud's on the left side. In other words, is this letter saying that it has a lot of contribution, it's expressing itself on the right and not on the left, or vice versa? Is its main expression in the middle? But we don't have time to go into... Just give you one example. Just one example. An aleph. <coughs> What's an aleph? An aleph is two yud's and a vav. The right-hand side is a pure yud. You know what an aleph looks like in Hebrew? 
Aleph is a Yud from the top down. And then on the opposite side on the left, it's a Yud from the bottom up, a mirror image. The Yud, ten, the ten higher emanations coming down from the spiritual world. The ten emanations reflecting themselves in the, in the balance, in the mirror image in this world, right? Always a mirror image. The Torah always inverts itself from one level to the next. <coughs> also needs discussion. That's, it. That's also why the body, the right side of the brain, inverts to control the left side. The right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. Why is that? And the left side of the brain controls the right side. They teach you that in medical school, but they tell you why. Didn't tell you why. This is the reason. You get your money back. <laughs> the reason is because in the higher world coming down to the lower world, there's always an inversion. That also needs further. That also needs study. But the Aleph, you have the Yud coming down on the right uh, this way. You have it representing its a product. Its yeah, and in the middle you have a Vav. So Aleph is a perfect expression. The two closed right and left. The long expression of connection, the Aleph, is the ultimate level of connection between the higher world and this. That's why it's the first level of the Aleph base. It means that the creation of spirituality, Anochi Hashem Alokecha, begins with an Aleph. It means it's that letter which is a letter but is yet silent. It's the beginning of expression. It's silent, there's no sound to an Aleph, but it is a letter. You can draw it out. You can give expression to an Aleph by the voweling that you give it, but in itself there's no expression. And meaning, that it, and of course that's why it is the letter that indicates oneness. Aleph is one. But the elements add up to 26. Yud and Yud and Vav in Hebrew are 26, which are the 26 elements of Hashem's name. The Yud K Vav K, the four-letter name, adds up to 26. It also adds up to 32, because if you express the Vav in an Aleph, you get Yud Yud and Vav Vav. Right? <coughs> when it's expressed, you spell Vav in Hebrew, Vav Vav. That's 32, really. There's 10 and 10 and two sixes. And that is the 32 elements of the creation, the Shem Elohim, the name that brings the creation into existence, mentioned 32 times in the Genesis account of, in the Brashi's description of the creation of the world. And that also needs, also needs discussion, that's why you have 32 teeth, and why the word lave is 32, the heart, the essence of the thing always says 32 elements, also all of this needs a lot of explanation. But the point is that the Aleph represents these things. What the Ramchal is saying is that a letter in Hebrew is a graphic representation, I mean the graphic letter that we have, is a graphic representation of spiritual forces. And those forces are creative. And the way the world is created is by letters swimming into focus to form words. He explains, he goes into detail, he says that you can't express something except by letters, when the letters get together and form words. And that is an amazing mystery and a great problem, because (coughs) the problem that you have here is that when you express a thing, you must use a mode of expression. Words, <coughs> the words are put together by components which are the letters. But the letters and the words are not the things themselves. <coughs> they represent the things themselves. When I want to share something with you, what I have in me is a concept. The concept has nothing to do with words. Stay with me carefully. The concept has as little to do with words as I do with my name. In fact, in the next chapter, it goes on to the wisdom of names. Can you see the connection? A name is a handle that extends to the outside of the thing for those on the outside to use. You need my name. I don't need my name. Uh, you should not think. You don't think of yourself in terms of your name. At least, if you're healthy psychologically, you don't go around referring to yourself in your own thoughts by your name. But if you do, you need, you need therapy. That's not, that's not normal. You think of yourself without needing your name. right? Because you grasp yourself as you are. But I can't do that. I need to grasp you by an external representation. So your name is that which puts you into an expression that, that speaks to the outside. The letters that form words, the means by which we speak, 
and express ourselves are always a translation of an abstract essence that doesn't have any form or shape. <coughs> are we getting somewhere? Doubtful. <laughs> the way I grasp a thing in my mind, the way you grasp a thing, you don't grasp it by its words, you know a thing as it is. You don't. The tragedy, of course, of most of our thinking is that we do speak to ourselves in words. We don't actually allow ourselves to know. Meditational knowledge, real knowledge, inner knowledge, is knowledge by which you actually know the thing itself. And you shouldn't be putting it into words. When you put it into words, you bring it down, you compress it, you put it into an external representation. You fracture the thing, you put it into a finite box. It's a big problem. You shouldn't do that. You should train yourself to think of the things as they are. When you need to share them or express them, then you need to bring them down into the packages of words, and it's a big problem. The beauty of the words and the letters that form them is that they give you a means of expression. But the pain, the suffering, the price you pay is that you lose the thing itself. All you can do now is talk about the thing. You can't say the thing. All you can say is something about the thing. And hope that your listener knows enough about the thing itself anyway that, that he or she will understand what you mean. This is the reason that real communication is impossible. You can never really communicate with somebody except somebody who already knows what you mean anyway. Then you don't have to say it. And that's why two people who really communicate, who really know each other deeply, can communicate with the most subtle of indications. The subtlest of a hint or an indication is enough for the other person to understand thoroughly. But people who need to speak to each other in detail, so the rule is the more you need to say, the less chance you have of getting it across. And if you really need to explain in great detail, at great length, you might as well forget about it, because there's no way you're going to say it. <laughs> this is the problem with expression. The wonder of it is that we can connect with each other. But the price is that to connect external to yourself, you have to bring it down into a... That's what the letters are. The letters are the methodology. They are the format. And they are a new thing. The Ramchal explains they're something new. They are not the higher forces themselves. They are a picture or representation or a packaging, if you like. They are an external tool. They are a tool that bring down, just like the body, is just a tool, a vessel that contains an inner reality, which is you. The letters are these tools or external bodily elements that contain the inner meaning. <coughs> and the world is created by being spoken into existence. You know, listen to what... I mean, just to... It's an endless subject, but... I just picked on one, one, one incredible expression of it. And again, it's a standard idea in the, the, the deeper sources, but listen to what the Swasema says that he heard from his, his grandfather in the name of his rebbeim. He heard it from them. But listen to this. Noyach, the Ark of Noah, Noah's Ark. Who You know what it is? It is the it's Torah and Tefillah. Right? When, when the, again, on the superficial level, when you're six years old, the meaning is that a man built a ship and he entered that ship with animals and they floated upon the waters. But the Torah is always talking about deeper things. Not that the six-year-old level is not true. Of course it is. Of course it is. But when, you, when you're beyond six, you need to understand that there are deeper things happening here. The word teva in Hebrew has two meanings. You see, Hebrew says what it means. Other languages are conventions. When I say a table... You know what I mean, because we've agreed that the word table means that thing, but there's nothing intrinsic, there's no intrinsic connection between that word and this object. The word does not say the thing. The word is an arbitrary word. But we've agreed that uh, that arbitrary grunt, or mumble, that we call table, right, means to you what I want it to mean, because we happen to have agreed. But it could have been anything. The truth is that the word table is significant, because all languages are fragments of Hebrew. All languages have an inner spark. When, those, when that language, that was that single unifying language that they spoke when they built that tower. Can you see where we're heading? 
the language that they spoke, they didn't speak to each other, they created that tower with those words. When they were destroyed by having their language shattered, so what, what resulted in the world was 70 different language groupings, each of which was one of the languages of one of the nations. Today they, they're very, very distantly related because <coughs> the 70 nation groups in the world have all been dispersed and inter- intermixed and intermingled. <coughs> in the days of Sanchari, that happened. But there, was, there were 35 Arab nations or Ishmael nations and 35 Asav nations or Western Bloc nations. And each of them carried, it, carried with it a spark, a fragment of the original... Hebrew language, which means that every, every other language on earth is not only a convention, it also has an inner spark somewhere. Now, it's very, very mutated and battered and mutilated and changed now. Very hard to define in every English word not where the source is. There is some serious work that's been done. There's a dictionary that somebody put out recently with a few thousand words in English that trace their origins back through their roots in, in Latin and Greek, back to the Hebrew, the Hebrew roots. Very interesting. Some of it is very speculative, but some of it is very convincing. Someone told me recently that someone's compiled a Japanese dictionary recently with 2,000 words from Hebrew origin again. But be that as it may, whether that's true or not, the point is that the essence of it is true, that all languages are actually a fragment, a particular facet, that that particular nation finds in its particular mode of expression, right? That's why the language of a nation is very expressive of its nature. It's not accidental at all. It's very expressive of its inner nature, the way it, the way it speaks. Not accident at all. But it's very hard to define now at this stage of history, where the original fragments of the original... But Hebrew is not like that. Hebrew is not a convention. What we call Lashon Kodesh, right? not necessarily modern Hebrew. Modern Hebrew is again a devolved process. But, but, but Torah, Torah language, right? that language is a language in which the letters actually indicate the elements. They are the constructive elements. The letters are to the words, building the words, exactly as the chemical elements in chemistry, are building the compounds that they build. The reason the compound is what it is is because those elements get together, interact in that way, they produce that thing. In Hebrew, the word is what it is because those letters get together, they mean what they say. They are those things. Don't forget, the world was originally created by these things being said. In Hebrew, I've often pointed out, we've often shared here the idea, that the word davar, which means a word, is also the Hebrew word for an object. Because anything in the world, when you want to say thing in Hebrew, you say davar. When you want to say word, you say davar. Why have the same word for two things? You couldn't come up with another three-letter permutation in Hebrew? There are plenty of vacant available ones. Plenty. But in Hebrew, which is the spiritual language, if two things have one name, it means they're the same thing. The word davar in Hebrew, what is the connection between a word and a thing? A thing is a thing, and a word is the description of the thing. They're not the same concept by no means. Hopefully they map to each other. Hopefully. But in Hebrew it's not like that. In Hebrew the thing is the word. Because it was brought into creation as an emanation or projection of the word itself. It couldn't be more closely related. It's just a different level of projection. And the reason that it looks the way it does is because the letters that make up the word are those chemical elements that when you put them together in that word. And therefore when the world was wiped out, the way the world was wiped out was that the letters were jumbled. That means the flood. Right? The flood was an annulling. It was a, it was a, a dis- dissolution of the elements of creation. And no one can survive that. So how did he survive? He floated in a ship. But the deeper sources, it's actually quoting a Zohar. The Zohar says that the word Teva in Hebrew also has two meanings. It means an ark, and it means a word. A Teva in Hebrew, that word, Teva, 
means an ark in the sense of a ship that floats. It also means the Oren Kodesh. You know what we call in a shul, where we keep the Sefer Torah. What do we call that? That's called the Teva. So the Zara says that the, the reference here is to Torah and Tefillah, which are word processes. That's what he survived in. And he goes into, <coughs> gives halachic ramifications to this and, and, and source reference material. Now, perish, what does this mean? Because in each thing, when he says in each thing, of course that can be interpreted as each thing or each word. <coughs> but here he means in each thing in the world, there's an inner spark of chius that means life, energy. May I tell you that the Torah gives it, even though it's often covered. By bitul amiti that means if you annul yourself totally to the inner essence here, the thing reveals itself. Because each thing, when there's an annulment of the vested interests and the external ego elements, when those things are completely annulled, a thing reattaches itself to its point of origin, to its point of chius, of life. But that's only when a person annuls himself and makes himself part of Hashem, like a fetus is part of its mother. <coughs> the OCS Torah, listen to this. The letters of the Torah, the letters of the Torah, these are the lights that are beyond our grasp. When the Torah is put together with letters, each letter is beyond our grasp. These are the higher lights that he spoke about. The only way you can grasp letters is by means of words. The only way that letters have expression is when you put them into words. The word, the word takes those letters that are beyond expression, and when you assemble them into a word, then you have something expressed. In that vessel that puts the letters together and makes something that has meaningful expression, that's where he survived. That's where Noach survived on the forces of destruction that had wiped out the world into, to, back to its chaotic formlessness. And therefore, it comes out, he says, that the word, the table in Hebrew, is the vessel for the light that it contains. And in such a manner, all things in the world are vessels for the letters that are contained within them. Etc. It develops it further. So, this childlike picture of a man going into a ship and floating on the water is a much deeper message here. And that is that the... And each part of the letter contains its energies, whether it's on the right and it's closed, and on the left that it's open, or the two on the sides are closed, in the middle. The letter is bringing down the energies in that particular pattern, and when that particular element has that particular pattern, and it's combined together with other letters to make a word, which now has expression, you now have that object created in the world. There are actually four letters to every letter, four levels to every letter. That's a well-known... <coughs> idea that's discussed <coughs> again in the deeper sources the Ramchal himself goes into <coughs> goes into detail about it that's what's known as the again without too much of the jargon here that's known as Tanta Tanta really is the four letter acronym in the deeper literature for <coughs> for the for the Tagin the Tag is the little crown of the letter so you don't have this in other languages you don't even begin to have this in Hebrew the letter has a has a Tag it has a an extension, an infinitesimal crown, as it were, an extension that, that stretches it upward. Actually, Kabbalistically, it doesn't stretch it upward. It's where it receives its point of origin. That's where, it's in English, you would say, where the ink meets the paper. Right? It's, not, it's, it's that beginning of, the, of expression. Right? The letter has that above it. Then you have the letter itself. You have the letter itself. And then you have, under the letters, the vowels in Hebrew. 
But unlike other languages, again, I don't know about all languages, but Hebrew has a unique feature, is that the letters, when put together, are only consonant, they're only consonants. In order to say the word, you need to put the vowels in underneath. Now, in the Torah, we don't have the vowels. Why is it written that way? Why wasn't the Torah written with the vowels? Why, why was, have you ever looked in the Sefer Torah? You look in the Sefer Torah, it's all written, right? Like much of Hebrew, it's written without the vowels. What is it, some kind of challenge to see if you can, you know, figure it out? Why weren't it written with the... Take great care with the Sefer Torah, it's not too much effort, I assure you. And not only is it not written with the vowels, it's not written with the punctuation either. Because the four levels are called the tag, that's the crown of the letter. Then there's the letter itself, that's called ois. Then you have the nekudois, tanta, nekudois, nun, for the, the dots underneath. And finally you have what's called the timing. The time, the time means, time means a taste. But here what it really means is the, and it can mean a meaning as well. <coughs> but here what it means is the tune. The time, the trop, right? This, those little symbols that are written, if you look in the Chumash, what they call in English, the cantillation. Meaning how you sing it. Meaning the tune. In English you'd say the punctuation that gives expression. Punctuation in, in language is not just a... It doesn't, doesn't tell you where to... Simply where to stop and take a breath. But the punctuation is, gives meaning. It's a very big difference in meaning if you put the comma here or the comma there. Or the <coughs> Those aren't written in the same Torah. The deep reason why they're not written in Hebrew is because they aren't written. They said... Again, the letter is that element that comes down from the higher world. So we take that letter, it swims into focus... The letter has no meaning at all until it's put together with a word. You want to write down on a piece of paper, you write down on cloth, the, the, the parchment of a Sefer Torah, you write down the letters that combine to form the word. But you cannot express those unless you speak them out. So the sound of expression is not in the paper. The sound of expression is in the speaker. And therefore they're not written on the paper because that's not where they are. Again, again, you should be jumping up and down with, with excitement. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. It's wonderful. Your problem is you, you read English, right? That's your problem. So you think that's, that's where it's at. But the other languages, English is, 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 is it's good enough for what, they talk, for what they talk about. It's good enough. But you want to talk about the real things, you've got to do it this way. You want to say real things about real things. So the reason that the dots, the Nukudas, are not written in Hebrew is because they aren't written. That's not where they are. They are in the mouth of the speaker. And therefore the, the Torah is, is emes. The Torah is true. It only has what's in it. The expression of the Torah is in the mouth of the one who says it. And of course for the same reason the, the timing, the uh, punctuation, is also not there. The, the, the crown on the letter brings it down from its highest source. The letter itself is the body of the letter. The dots underneath, the vowels, connect the letters into words. <coughs> and the timing, the, the, the punctuation connects the words into sentences. And that's where the real meaning is. The, the dot on top, the, the crown on the letter, is unintelligible to us. It just indicates its point of origin. Of course, the Kabbalists have great, uh, great, great things they learn from those. But it's a point of origin. The letter itself is the form that brings down the energy and makes it, it can be depicted in the world. As you combine them, you get the words. But the expression of the word is only where the vowels are put in. That's the third level. And the fourth is, when the words are connected correctly, then the meaning comes out. Right? The, the, the word in Hebrew that indicates that best is probably the word Sefer. A Sefer, you know, we call it Torah. Torah is called a Sefer Torah, book of Torah. Sefer means, very interesting thing, the word, say, again, no other language is like this. I'm only trying to convince you of one thing tonight. <laughs> I, I hope it's obvious. If you speak Hebrew, by the way, you've got bigger problems. 
Because then you think you know what it means. <laughs> but you may never have explored the depth of what that... It's well known that Hebrew speakers have the big advantage of, of the language and the big disadvantage of, the, of the, the superficial and youthful connotations that are always in a language. That's why the tradition was among the Jewish people never to use Hebrew as a spoken language. Until this generation, there was never a time in Jewish history when we allowed Hebrew to be spoken. Do you know that? From first temple times on, during the first temple when prophecy was alive, people only spoke Hebrew because they spoke the prophetic language, because they lived on that level. But after the first temple was destroyed, the Jewish people took on always another language to speak, so that Hebrew would always retain its spiritual fire. Because when you bring a language down to the everyday, then the connotations that go in to a child, they can never be expunged. So the Hebrew, the Jewish people took on Aramaic. In the, in the Sephardic countries, they made up Ladino. In the Ashkenazi countries, they made up Yiddish. They constructed languages that are incredibly beautiful Jewish expressions. But they avoided using Hebrew except for the, for the concepts of spirituality, so that the words and letters would always dance with that fire. Because when you're three years old and you use a word one way, then when you're 33 years old, you can never see it any other way. Never. That's why when an Israeli child, a Hebrew-speaking child, right, when they see, let's say you work in the, 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 the world of the Chazrim B'Tshuvah, you know, the Baal Shuvah world. So you sit down with a young student who's in an Israeli background, and they start, you start learning Chumash, for example. So you come to the first, you start at the beginning, so it's Shadim Hashem, God looked at the world, and He said, Tov Ma'od. Now it says that He made man, and His judgment of man was, Tov Ma'od, He's very good. Right? Now, tov, the word ma'od, which means very, is an amazing problem there. The commentaries have a field day with that word, because ma'od, very, the first problem with the word very, is that if God makes something, you don't have to tell me that it's very good. Good by Him is the best they could be. So what does it mean, very good? The other things are not very good? He makes things that are not very good, and some things that are very... <coughs> Secondly, the word ma'od, actually is the same letters as Adam. Ma'od is the same letters as Adam. Adam, the word man the generic term for the human, is the same letters as very. And the reason is not too hard to fathom, because a human is that which can expand. Very means whatever you have is more than that. Ma'od means it's more. Ma'od is one of the words the Hebrew, Hebrew uses for money, for example, because money is translated into value. It can make, can make produce. So the commentary said that when it says good, very good, it's really talking about man, and it really means that he's bad, that he has a bad instinct, it means death. There's an endless commentary on why it says tov ma'od. Right? Tremendous mystical commentaries on what that is. But when you learn that with an Israeli child, when they see the word tov ma'od, to them it means 8 out of 10. <laughs> That's what it means. Because tov ma'od is what the Morah is giving at 10 o'clock at night when she's tired. She's not giving Mitsuyan anymore. She's, is that, is that she's giving 8 out of 10. So he sees God looking at the world and saying 8 out of 10. <laughs> That's what it means. And you can't, you can't get that out of... The, it's a tremendous amount of work to get that out of a mind because it's been put in at that young level. The word Selem. You know what Selem means in Hebrew? Selem means the image, the divine image that's imprinted in the human being. In Hebrew, Selem means... Matzlema means a camera. It means like a graphic image. And it goes on and on. I mean, it's just, you know, the word Agadah. Do you know what Agadah means in Hebrew? Agadah 
means those parts of Torah that are mystical and deep. The word Gad in Hebrew, huh? Agada. Yeah, but if you change, it's Adama. Huh? Ah, okay. Agada is based on Gad. Gad in Hebrew, the root Gad means to bring down. Like in Aramaic, you have good asik, good achis. It means to to stretch. Gada of a river, the 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 the, the, um, the bank of a river is both the blocking the river doesn't go out and also extends the river in that direction. It pushes the water in that direction. Right? The Aramaic word isnegidu means to pull in a direction. Isnegidu pull. Agada means those things that bring down from the higher world. So the agadic component of Torah, when you learn agada, you're talking about the deepest mystical ideas, how they come down. The Kabbalists talk about the mazal. The mazal of a thing is its zodiac element. The word mazal in Hebrew means to flow. Nozel is a liquid. We think of mazal means luck. The word mazal is based on the root nozel. It means it flows down from a higher world. In our secular mind, we think luck is that which is completely unconnected to any higher thing. It's like lucky. <laughs> but no such thing in Jewish terminology. Gad is that element, agada. But you know what agada means to an Israeli speaker? That means fairy tales. Agadot Yapaniot. That's what it means. If you talk about Aesop's fables or Japanese fairy tales, ma, it's agada. But that's, that's, so it's very, when you sit down again with an Israeli who wants to learn Torah and they've had agada mean to them fables and fairy tales, so how can they hear this as essence? It happens, it happens, it happens. And then they have the advantage of the Hebrew language. But it needs a, re, a, re, a reorientation. What we have to understand here is that the Hebrew language is generative, it is essential, it is a language of essence. It's not a language that talks about things, it is those things. There are many, many spin-offs of this. I mean, one is the famous idea of gematria. Gematria, right? Again, it would take us all night to talk about it. Gematria means, again, in the, in the false and fallen conception, gematria is playing with numerology. A word has a certain number, you find another word that has the same number, there's a connection between them. It's true, of course, but there's a much deeper, much, much deeper meaning here. And again, no other language has any vague connection to this. Uh, you know Agada, right? Uh, Agada. Gematria. Gematria means the numerological or numerical equivalent of the letters. In incredible detail, each letter is equivalent to a, num- to a number, each component of the letter. You know, Hebrew letters are made up of other letters. A lamet, for example, is a chaf with a vav on top. You know that? The letters are compound except the yud. An aleph is two yuds and a vav. Like we said. So you can break it down into those components. The Kabbalists even break the vowels down into their components. The three dots of a segel, for example, are 30 because each one's a yud. It's a the superficiality of a gematria is simply that two, two words have the same number, right? It happens to be the word echad, for example, in you. Echad adds up to 13. Echad meaning one. Adds up to 13. Aleph and ches and dalet adds up to 13. The word ahava in Hebrew which means love, adds up to one. Because the concept of love is things that are different or disparate bonding into oneness. And 13 is always the concept of the multiplicity of parts. You can't break down more than 13 things, right? 12 is always the lines that surround any three-dimensional structure, right? 12 lines that surround a cube, what the Kabbalists call the Yudbeis Kaveh Alachson, and the 13th that bonds them all into one object. So 13 is always the maximum multiplicity. And the maximum oneness is when 13 are built into one. That's why Bar Mitzvah is 13 for a boy when all the elements come into oneness that are productive. And I've many, many times shared with you the idea that that's why 13 is a very Jewish number, right? The 12 tribes with the father, Yaakov at Bonzer. That's why the non-Jews, of course, don't respond to 13. That's why they 
And, and let's do a 13, right? because they, they will live in a world of multiplicity, and we live in a world of bonding multiple things into one thing. So you have two, two words that have the same number, significant number, so they have a connection in meaning. But Kamachi is much more than that. You have to understand this. Kamachi is not simply taking two words that have the same number. First of all, you know there are many forms of Kamachi. Do you know that? Kamachi is not only uh, numerical equivalence. There's one form of Gematria, for example, that's called Al-Bam. Al-Bam means that you transpose, you take the 22 letters of the alphabet, and you split them into two sets of 11. 11 male components, the first half, and 11 female components, the corresponding half. So Al-Bam means every Aleph you transpose for a Lamet. The first of the male, you put the first of the female. For every Bet, you put a Mem, and so forth and so on. There's another Gematria called Atbash, which is for every Aleph, the first letter, you transpose the last letter in a word. And for every second letter, you put the second last letter, and you transpose the word into an opposite... Well, what are these things? What, what are these things? First of all, how can you do that with a language? How can you do that? You take a word, and every aleph you put a tuff, and you come up with a new word. What does that mean? Every gematria in Hebrew is a scientifically precise wisdom that brings out of the word a mathematical notation that gives you the formula that constructs it. Again, what gematria is in Hebrew is exactly like Exactly like in language, whether you choose to express a thing verbally or in scientific mathematical notation. I could describe to you how two forces interact. Or I could write down the mathematical or physical formula in numbers that says the same thing. If anything, that's more accurate. The verbal thing might be easier to relate to if you're unschooled in that wisdom. It might be very expressive. But it's much more economical and much more precise and much more accurate to say it in its numerical version. No educated scientist or physicist or chemist would, would explain to his friend in verbal terms how a reaction goes. He writes down the formula. In Hebrew, the Hebrew language works in such a way, unlike all other languages, you can describe a thing or an event or a process verbally, namely the Torah's verbal equivalent, or you can transpose those letters... You can transpose those letters into their numerical equivalents, and what the Torah then comes out to be saying is the same thing, but in scientific notation, in mathematical or chemical notation. And obviously it's the same thing, because the words form those things. So they form the things in the way they manifest to us, and they form those things in the laws of physics and science that lie behind them. And every form of gematria is a different mathematical... What is atbash, for example? Again, take us all night, but just an example. Atbash, where you take... The notion here is that the, 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 the alphabet proceeds from maximally male in the aleph, which means maximal potential dimension, to maximal female in the tuff, which means maximal production of reality at the end. Just like the male contributes the energy for a child, only the seed dimension, multipotential energy, and the woman translates that down into the production of a child, which at the end is the tangible production that she, that she produced, one reflecting the other. So the notion is this, any time you take a Hebrew word, and you transpose any letter that it has from the first half of the other place for a letter that comes from its equivalent degree of female nature, what you're doing is you're looking at what the word would do when it runs its program and produces its result. And if you take a word that's constructed with the female elements and transpose it, you see where it came from. Example. Give me an example. I mean, again, take a long time to, to work through fully, but... There's a verse in Mishlei, for example, in Proverbs. It says, Ki nefesh das, Ki nefesh dat, That means a human soul, a nefesh, that doesn't have dat, wisdom, knowledge, is not good. Simple meaning. A person who doesn't understand anything is not good. Says the God of Yolanda, the deeper meaning is, if you take the word nefesh, in Hebrew, and atbash it, you get the word tov. What does that mean? 
Tov is three letters from the first half of the Aleph base. It means good. It means the spiritual quality in the higher world that begins the process is called goodness. Like the Ramchal says, Hashem's reason, God's reason for creation is His goodness. That's Tov. What does the word Tov do when it produces its result? The human soul, Nefesh, which is the purpose of creation. So a Nefesh that doesn't know that is not Tov. A Nefesh that acts like an animal, that doesn't have the, the, the diet which connects him to his point of origin, he's not the Tov that set out to create. The words actually say what they mean, both in their notation scientifically and in their verbal expression. So Atbash, you can do with Hebrew, you can't do with another language. And the reason is, again, because each letter is a notation that indicates the thing that it says, that it actually means in every possible way. And when those combine into the words, you get the vessels that hold the lights and give them expression that, and existence to the world. Let's turn for a moment to those people who built that tower. What was the methodology that they hoped to use? What was their aim? Their aim was they wanted to build a tower that they would use to go to the root of creation. No less than that. Hashem himself, battle with him. Let's go up and battle against him. Uh, and let's cut off part of his existence. Right? The, the deepest sources say they wanted to cut off the last hay of his name. They have Yud K Vav K, right? The last hay of Hashem's name is the letter that brings down creation into reality, brings it down into manifest reality. They wanted to cut that off, manipulate it, control it, conquer it, and use it. The beautiful expression in the, the, beautiful expression in the deeper wisdom that talks about it is Lichbosh et Hamalka imi babayit. Right? The, the, the expression that was used in the Megillah when Haman fell on the queen's bed, when Esther was on her, on her couch, and Haman tried to beg for his life, and he tripped and fell on, he fell on her bed. And the king arrived at that time, seeing Haman in that situation with his own wife. And that sealed his death warrant. Right? And the expression was, to conquer the queen while I'm present, as it were. That's the expression they used for these people who wanted to go up and take away the queen. The queen is always that aspect of the divine manifestation, which brings down, just like the woman, brings birth into existence. It's that part of the divine structure, if you like, that brings the world into its practical expression, creation. They wanted to go and take that power and run the world for themselves. How do you hope to do such a thing? Again, please stay with me carefully. Can you imagine such a plan? Imagine a generation of, of humans. The whole world. The whole world was involved. One man stood out. Abraham, I mean Abraham. He stood against the whole world. The entire united humanity got together and they said, this is our project. We're going to battle him. It says when the Mashiach comes, when the Messiah arrives, <coughs> so the force of Gog and Magog, without here going into the whole messianic predictions, but the verse says, <coughs> they'll, they'll come to battle, Al Hashem Val They'll come to battle God and His Messiah. They'll come to battle Hashem. Not His people, or an ideology. They'll come explicitly, knowing exactly what's going on, when Hashem manifests Himself openly, they'll come to do battle with Him. Chutzpah? <laughs> That's what it will be. They'll probably come to battle him in his own name, incidentally. I don't want to say too much. Here. <clears throat> but that's what it will be. They want to take control and run the world. How do you, how do you conceive such a project? What method would you use if you wanted to control the whole world and bring it under your dominion? What tool would you use? There's only one tool. Language. Because the tool that creates the world is the letters that swim into focus in the words. That gives the world existence. It had originally, and it had in the form of the Teva, the Ark, in which Noah 
Noah survived that brought the world into its recreated form. So that's what they wanted to do. They were Dvarim Achadim. They were Dvarim Achadim. They spoke one language. It doesn't only mean the children. You know what the children are taught in Cheder? The children are taught that all these people spoke Hebrew. The world was created with Hebrew. All peoples on earth. There were no nations, by the way. You know that? There were no nations. It was all one mass of humanity. There was no breakdown into language groups and identities. But you imagine the heroism of Abraham, of Abraham, who stood against the whole world. Not one niche of humanity, not one country, not one culture. He stood against the entire world. In fact, they were so ridiculous that they allowed him to survive. You know that? Nimrod and his people, Nimrod and his people said, what are you, what are you fussing about as one individual and he's sterile? Prada Zoo, they said, Akarahi. This donkey, this mule is sterile. Who cares? A few more years, he'll rant and rave and he'll die. It's a problem. I hate to get political. <laughs> but I just can't avoid this example. <laughs> so for the record, I never said this. But it reminds me of the early years of the state. I don't know if you know, there was a big debate in the Israeli army when it got going about whether there was a right for those who wanted to have kosher food to be given kosher food. Those in the army who wanted kosher food, it was a big, big debate because it was an ideological issue. I'm not going to mention any names of the time. But it was a big debate. And some of the cabinet ministers came to the then prime minister, and I'm not going to mention any names. And they said to him, you cannot allow this. You're going to start running an Israeli army with kosher food. You're going to bow down and submit to the religious coercion that's an ideological mistake. We don't mind individuals eating kosher food, but you want to do that as a policy and on national level that it runs on religious lines? And there was a tremendous debate about it. Do you know what he answered then? He said, what is the fuss? In one generation, there'll be none of them left. Give them kosher food. What's the problem? Their children aren't going to grow up like them. One dying generation. So what's the fuss? Give them kosher food. So they said, he's irrelevant. And of course, he founded the whole, the whole process of knowledge of Hashem in the world and everything that it became. <coughs> but these people, this united humanity, they decided to recreate the world in their own image and they were going to use language. And they had possession of the language. Do you know what that means? It means that they spoke one language, they spoke one language, that means a united humanity that used that power of creation. With that power, you could create the world. You know, it says they wanted to build an ir umigdal. That's the expression. A city and a tower. Again, follow through carefully with me. What city and tower were they building? What tower exactly? What were these bricks that they fired? You have to understand the Torah on a, on a slightly deeper level. The bricks that they fired to build this tower, one of, the, one of the more recent commentaries points out a most beautiful thing. The furnace in which they fired the bricks, the Torah goes into great detail about how they baked the bricks. The furnace in which they baked the bricks was the same furnace they threw Avram into. Because he stood for his principles. When Nimrod threw him into the fire to destroy him and he miraculously survived, it was the same fire that they were using to bake the bricks. To bu- you understand? The same agency that they were using to create this thing that would be their victory in the world was the same force that... They were, yeah, obviously, was the same force that wanted to destroy the one who... What was this Iru Migdal? So the deeper sources say the Ir was Yerushalayim and the Migdal was the base of Mikdash. Beta Mikdash. Ir, city, always means the city, which is Jerusalem. And Migdal, the Migdal, which means the tower that reaches from here to the highest world, that's always a code word in Torah, a Migdal, a tower, for 
the temple, the Beis HaMikdash. Al-Migdal Tzavarech, it says, for example, in Shira Shirim, it talks about the tower of your neck. The neck, what does the neck represent? The neck represents in the body what the temple, Beis HaMikdash, represents in the world. Why? Because the neck is the connection between the higher world and the lower world. What is the temple? It's that part of the world. you hear what's going on here? That's why it's called a tower of a neck. It can, what happened when Joseph and Benjamin met after many years? Yosef and Binyamin met, right? So it says, He cried more on his neck. <coughs> he embraced each other and he cried on his neck. So Rashi says he was crying for the destruction of the two temples that would happen many centuries hence. Anybody reading those words must say to himself, how did Rashi know that? How does he know? His two brothers meet after many years, they cry, embrace each other, and he cries upon his neck, which is where you cry when you embrace somebody, when you put your head down. Rashi says he's crying for the destructions of the temple. How did Rashi know that? Because the neck is the code word, crying on the neck, yeah, is crying for that structure in the world, which is the connection. I know that exactly what it means. It so happens that the temple is the neck of Joseph, if you really want to know. Because Yosef, the word Joseph in Hebrew and the word Zion have the same numerical equivalent. Because Zion, what we call Zion, Zion, which means Mitsuyan, which means a place of unique identity, Zion and Nefesh Chaya, right? That which is uniquely identified, that is Joseph. Joseph is the connection to higher and lower worlds where male and female connect. Joseph is the purity of male-female connection. That's why he resists the temptation of a woman for a year who tries to seduce him. Right? He is that purity. Very deep things here. <coughs> they were trying to build that structure that would reach the higher world and bring down its energy. They didn't think that you could put a tower of stones together and get some place that would make any difference. We're talking about incredible sophistication. We're talking about <coughs> pure spiritual power. And the tools that would build that tower, that structure, were the same tools that had created the world in the first place. And with those tools, it was doable. It was doable. If Hashem hadn't made a specific personal intervention, they would have wrested control of the world for their own ends and means. How did He destroy their plan? What did He do? He sent a nuclear holocaust. What did He do? Go down and confuse their language. So we taught to think that it was a peripheral device. How am I going to stop these people? Well, if they can't communicate properly, so they won't be able to continue their project. This is how we taught to think. So the little children in Cheda are taught that those people spoke Hebrew. And Hashem, in order to pervert their plan, He suddenly zapped them, right, with differentiated language. This one spoke Zulu, and that one spoke Chinese. So, yeah, He asked him for a brick, He passed him a hammer. He got upset, He hit him over the head, He fell off, the brick fell there. End the project. You have to understand, He wasn't speaking Zulu, and He wasn't speaking Chinese. They were still speaking Hebrew. But the problem was the way we speak. That when you listen to someone else speaking, you don't hear what he's saying. You hear what you think you'd like to hear. Which is usually, usually nothing to do with what he said. And most commonly, the exact opposite of what he said. <laughs> That's how we communicate. Once that happened, there's no more building towers that use a unified language that can reach the source of spiritual world. Then the world begins to look like a chaos that we have. That's what it is. Not such a difficult challenge. That's what it is. And therefore these people, 
Right? This was not a frivolous or infantile, you know, or ridiculous. These were people who understood exactly where the source is. They wanted to take that language, which is where those letters coalesce into those words that are the meaning of creation itself. They're nothing less than the translation, like he said, the Rampa. <coughs> the translation that brings down the energies, the lights of the higher world, and gives them the vessels when they construct themselves into those composite vessels that the lights inhabit. And that is control of the world. That's creation of the world. That's where they were headed. And therefore the destruction was not in some peripheral device that would you know, break up their plan. The destruction was exactly the tool, exactly the place where they were centered and positioned, right, is what they did. And the problem was that these people were unified, but they were unified around a project that was the opposite of what, again, the purpose of humanity, the purpose of being is for us to unite in the most incredibly bonded way. The Jewish people, first of all, have to get together in what's called Knesset, which means our souls have to be bonded. The broader level of humanity has to do that as well. Again, there are many layers to this. <coughs> that unity has to be re... The Torah was given to the Jewish people when they stood as one being. The Torah, the Torah expresses the giving of the Torah to a people It suddenly switches into the singular. It says, Vayichan Sham. Instead of to saying they camped there, it suddenly switches to the singular when it talks about the nation. Because at that moment there was a coalescing of souls in such a way that it was like one person with one heart. At that moment there was an instant connection the Torah was given. And we're not going to get there unless we do that. Right? When the world is in a chaotic breakdown, where each piece pulls in its own direction, and it's ready to kill for its own particular piece, which itself is an illusion in the first place. So then you have the chaos that we have here. And the result, what we have to do, of course, is recreate that oneness, which means the self-negation of my own individual. Right? I have to, I have, you have to be as important to me as I am, so that we can build that, that unity. That is done, yeah, we have to get ba- back to speaking that language. Which is a language that when I speak, you understand. When you speak, I understand. What they did was, they had the tool of unity. They were infinitely higher than we are. We don't even begin to have any project, because there's no commonality of anything. They had one project, only it was a wrong one. It was a wrong one. The project was to unify the whole world and take over control for their vested interests, for their ends. And that's what it is. And the great movements of history have been one or other devolved version of that project. If it's the Western bloc of nations, it's been getting together around an essentially idolatrous focus, which is that he's not really in the picture anymore. If there's lip service, as it were, to him, it's really only for the purpose of our needs. In the other block of nations... I want to be too specific, but the block that is uh, not the West, (laughs) that that block that sees itself in opposition to the West, they do have a unity also. They are entirely unified. But again, the unity is around a message, and it's not a unity that's against him. But it's a unity around the message that they fathom in what he says. But that's not what he says at all. It's not at all what he says. But there's unity around that ideology. And of course, those are the great massive movements of destruction and of chaos that the world has seen, each one wave worse than the previous, which is where we find ourselves. And 
of course, our methodology of recreating that oneness is through Torah, which is the reconstruction of those letters. What else do we have? What else do we have? Are you going to go out there and fight? Exa- whom exactly? <coughs> when the forces of destruction become so utterly chaotic, where there isn't even a, not even a logic, it's not even a, not even a, not even a logic to the target. There's nothing else. We need to go back into that table. Back into that same ark, right, which floats on the waters of destruction. Is the only place to go. You like it, you don't like it. Now, Rav Asim and Rav Sikh was once addressing the boys in the yeshiva in Yushalayim. In Oral Khan and Yeshiva. And they all came to hear him. And the room was extremely crowded. People didn't have seats, it was very uncomfortable. And it was this time of year. So as he began speaking, he said, you know, looking out at all this crowd, people don't have seats, and people are crushed, he said, brings to mind, I can think of another place that also must have been extremely crowded. Noah's Ark. Right? Can you imagine? It was a ship, uh, you know, and in it, all species of the world were, were gathered. All species. And they occupied less than, you know, it was divided into three layers. The large la- bottom layer had no humans or animals in it. Only the middle layer, one third of the depth, had all the world species of animals of all sizes. It must have been incredibly crowded. So he said, we have no record that anyone complained. We have no record that in that ark anybody complained about the crush. He said, what's the reason? It's when there's a flood outside. <laughs> then you put up with whatever the conditions are inside. He said, that is how we are in the yeshiva world. The flood outside, in case you hadn't noticed. And in the world of Torah, it's the only place you can go where there's sanity. Where there is a language that means anything. Where there's any connection to the point of origin, there is no other place. What effect your involvement there will have on the outside world, it, uh, that's a broader problem. But it's the only point of salvation that you have. The Gemara says when these pre messianic chaotic forces are unleashed, you only have two, two elements you can involve yourself in Torah and the, pro- the, the profession of kindness. The actions of kindness, in the world, of, of really giving of yourself in terms of kindness. Those are the two opposing forces that build you the ark of sailing on the flood. Could just be that it also emanates out and has a broader effect too. It's not our responsibility. But it could be that it does that as well. And therefore the message is, the beginning of this, just the beginning to scratch the surface of this discussion, is that the world, the point of origin, is these vessels, these lights that come into the vessels that we call the letters. They form that book which we said, the word Sefer in Hebrew, which means the book, the book of Torah, the Sefer Yetzirah, the book of formation, original Kabbalistic work, long before the Zohar. So the Sefer Yetzirah says that the world itself is a Sefer, Sefer Vesipur. A book, a book, and a story. Three of them, the three dimensions. What does Sefer mean in Hebrew? The word Sfar in Hebrew is the root of the word Mispar. Here we get numbers. Listen carefully. We get the root of numbers and words coming together. A Sipur is a story. What is a story? One word after another, forming a sentence, forming a paragraph, until the story unfolds. Yeah? Mispar is a number. What is a number? It's one tiny finite piece on an infinite line of endless, endless line of numbers. The word Sfar in Hebrew literally means an edge or a border. Like Areha Sfar means the border towns. Because a number is a finite edged, hard edged piece of infinity. So a book 
in Hebrew, a sefer, right? The English word, we said that English derives from Hebrew, the English word cipher, meaning a symbol of a code, huh? is derived from here. <coughs> in case I didn't convince you, the word sefer in Hebrew, that word also is the root of the word sefirah. The word sefirah means accounting, but Kabbalistically it means one of the ten differentiated emanations from the higher world. The word sefirah means, as opposed to the oneness of the light that we can't fathom, when the light comes down in its ten primal elements that later become the letters, that later become the letters, each of them is called a sefirah, a counted unit, that which has an edge. The English, and that word sefirah in Hebrew, means one of these emanations, and it's also the root of the Hebrew word sef, sapiri, sapir. Sapir in Hebrew means, they're translated in English as sapphire. Tachas Raglav, it says, under his feet, Hashem's feet, can live not sapir, like a sapphire stone. So in English they're translated as a sapphire, because sapphire is sort of the color of the sky and sort of transparent. But it does not mean a sapphire stone, it means that which is of spiritual purity that is emanating the light from the higher world. Of course it's under the feet. That's where the external world begins. So the Hebrew word number, story, book, sapphire, Sapir, which means incredibly refined and The English word spirit, sapir, and spirit, spiritual. Just like the word sapphire, of course, obviously is from the same root. This is, this is what it is. And therefore the world itself is nothing other than this book, which is described as a sapphire. When Hashem shows you the world, He's holding up a sapphire Torah, He's doing a big hagba. He's holding up the world. The world is the safer, safer, safer. The world is the safer Torah. The safer Torah writes it out in words, and when you put the vowels in and you put the timing in and you speak it out, you have the world. You speak the right language. You speak Lashon Kodesh, the language of formation. You have the world itself. This is the world of reality. This is the world of formation. This is the world that is, that is forming the ark yeah, on which existence rests, where the human, human existence is, as it were, saved, floats above the chaos and the destruction. Those who survive spread out upon the world. They maintain their connection to oneness. They maintain that language. They set about building the product of such a oneness. But for their own purpose, the ego has got involved. They haven't lost the oneness, but they've lost sight of it. The They're trying to control it and bring it down to themselves. Right? We're working, working further and further into destruction, into chaos. And finally, the result is they lose even the language. They lose the language. It gets shattered and broken into a language of fragments. Let me add one more idea and we'll close for this evening. Where did this take place, this tower? In which country? In Bovel. You know that? It was in Bovel. One of the clues is it says, Let us go down and babble, the, incidentally, the English word babble. And Bavel, which is babble lot. Right, which comes from the babble, navla sham svatam, means in the country of Bavel, let us babble their language. That's what it means. That's, that. So the country where the language of the world was united is where it broke down. From that language, from that place of intense breakdown of language, one man survived. Abraham, Avram Avinu stands against the world, maintains that language against the whole world. The incredible single-mindedness and heroism, and he builds a nation that still maintains that language. That's you and me. Still able to hear the faintest echo of that thing. Where does it reside today, after we've had our breakdown? You know where it was? 
He came out of that land. They broke down. The language crashed. No two people could speak to each other anymore. And he maintained the language that was still the connection to the higher and the lower worlds. That language was called prophecy. That language, what we call Lashon Kodesh, the language of sanctity, means prophecy. And he founded a nation that had more than a million prophets. You know that? The Jewish people had more than a million prophets over the years. The words of the prophets that we have recorded are only the words that were needed for subsequent generations too. But those who spoke for their own generation, more than a million prophets. It ebbed off with time and the numbers became thinner over the centuries until it was finally ended just over 2,000 years ago. So what happened when finally the Jewish people were exiled at the ending of prophecy? You know where the exile was? To Babylon. The deeper sources say like a divorce. After a person's divorce, they go back to their parents' house where they came from. The Jewish people were exiled back to the place where their forefather had come from with that language, back into the land of breakdown of that language. And with the Jewish people's incredible resilience and unbelievable spiritual power, what was developed in Babylon? Talmud Bavli. The Babylonian Talmud. You know what the Talmud, you know what Babylonian Talmud is? It's the reconstruction of broken fragments to discover the original voice of truth. You know what the, Tal- the Talmud Bavli is? You know what Babylonian Talmud is? You had the experience of learning it? The way the Talmud works through an issue is unbelievable. It's very, very difficult for people who are unschooled in this method to grasp. The Talmud takes an issue, presents a convincing version of the issue, and just when you bought the idea, it says, completely wrong. Completely wrong. It's called the Hava Amina. What, that's what you would have thought, says the Gemara. Oh, so now you're enlightened, and now you work through the correct answer for four pages, and then it says, even worse! <laughs> Imagine a science textbook. Yeah, they take you to school and you see this. You learn a mathematical theorem and it's locked in with proofs and on the fifth page shows you wrong. Start again. That's how the Talmud... You know why? Because you no longer have the truth in the world. All we have is the broken down fragments. And when all you have is those, you start piecing them together. If you don't have the truth anymore, all you have is the broken pieces. If your vessel has broken, you don't have it anymore. All you can do is start piecing the pieces together. When you see where each one cannot fit, you get a close idea of where it may fit. And so what we do is we take the broken down fragments of language and we start from the wrong ideas, the broken down version. That's exactly what it is. And from that we reconstruct the truth. It's all we have. It's called Talmud Bavli. You have to listen very carefully. The Zohar doesn't talk that way. The Zohar, the Kabbalistic source work, or the Talmud Yerushalmi, when it wants to show you something, it says, Tachazi, come and see. It's clear, come and see. The Talmud Bavli says, Tashma, come and listen. It's in the darkness. You've got to hear it inside you. Yeah, reconstruct the pieces. And that's what Talmudic study is. It's learning to see the truth by reconstructing the broken pieces. That's all we have. It's a training for seeing the world and seeing that what you see at first glance is definitely wrong. Definitely wrong. What first glance, imagine, where do you come from? You're a child. You, personally, you're a child of Abraham, Avraham Avinu. He stood against a world where the whole world was convinced about a particular thing. Not just a culture, an idea, someone wrote an article... Every human being was totally dedicated with complete single-minded focus to the extent that they could have controlled the whole world. And one single individual is you all wrong. What an incredible mind. The Jewish approach to life is that what it looks like is definitely wrong. The fact that they all say it's right, that adds evidence that they're wrong. You live in a world where they laugh at you, you have any vestige of any spirituality. You even dare to think that there may be something above that you may one day be accountable to. 
They ridicule you and laugh at you and scorn you and uh, heap insult upon insult upon you. So there's a shame they can do say such a thing. But that's what a Jew is. A Jew is a person that looks at the whole world. Not this miserable world of chaotic idiocy. But even a world of cogent, cohesive, unified, totally dedicated focus and say, you're all wrong. And that's who he was. That's what he was. And he was right. They were wrong. The whole Torah training is to show you that what it looks like is definitely wrong. And what they all agree to is definitely wrong. And when you've perceived and seen through the facade of the mask, that's not right yet either. It's better. But it's not right yet. And as you grow, you have to deconstruct every level and see deeper and see beyond. That's how Talmud works. And that's why we study Talmud. Face value, that's not... The world is designed in that way. When the language is broken down, the the exterior facade of the world is broken down, you can't see it anymore. You have to hear it very deeply. And therefore the fact that they all agree and the fact that they laugh and mock and scoff and the fact that there's a large group out there who claim that they hear it and see it they know exactly what he means they're ready to kill en masse for that including themselves couldn't be better evidence that they're wrong the fact that they agree and what they prepare to extent they go is irrelevant to us you have to think through carefully study Torah learn to speak that language you have to learn to reconstruct that voice, that original voice that spoke out the letters and constructed them into the words and built that one last refuge, which is that book, that ark, if you like, that word that floats upon the words. We'll start